G'day everyone, welcome to Lubrication Experts and today uh, we've got a very special episode because it's one which has been requested a few times. Uh, we're going to be talking about re-refined base oils. Now, re-refined base oils is pretty topical because I feel like, um, you know, with increasing sustainability concerns, everyone is looking to lower their carbon footprint, but everyone also has concerns about, you know, what's the quality of re-refined base oils, um, you know, how are they manufactured? And I think there's a lot of myths that we might be able to dispel today. Um, and so... We, we, we have to always go to uh, the best source here, and um, I think we've, we've found that in uh, the Senior Vi Vice President of Safety Clean, which is Joel Garrett. Uh, Joel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much for having me. All right, so let's start at the beginning and just define, like, what are re-refined base oils? So, um, you know, what kind of oils can be re-refined? So um, I think from, a, from an end-user standpoint, um, end users basically just see, uh, you know, kind of like a bucket that they put all their waste oil into, um, right. you know, what, what ends up going into the re-refining process and then, and then what's the kind of like yield that we can get out of re-refined base oil. So, so maybe if I, if I take a liter of waste oil, how much re-refined base oil is coming out of that? Yeah. Try to answer some of that, I think. And then to help uh, understand it, it really all starts at the beginning. And a lot of that is based around the collection. Right. I mean, here in the U.S., there's almost, uh, I think it's 1.2 or 1.4 billion gallons a year of waste oil that gets generated. And about 45% of that goes to re-refining, which I'll explain in a second. And then the rest of that goes to, and gets used for fuel recovery, right? Because you can take that, it's got good BTU value. It depends on how far away it might be from a re-refinery. A lot of that material ultimately doesn't get re-refined. And that that does get re-refined goes through a lot of uh, steps for processing. So it really all starts with the collection. And that collection is done through what, what we look at as profiling. So you want to take that. If somebody's waste, so you can't just automatically take it and say, oh, here's a new product. You got to really understand the chemistry of what's in there, right? And that starts with, if is it from an automotive you know, oil changer? Is it from a rail fleet? Is it from an industrial facility? And understanding what that is and that doing a lot of pre-qualification testing on it. And that pre-qualification testing is going to look for things like hazardous materials, chlorinates, other things that might be a problem for processing in a re-refinery such as silicone. So we take that and we do some analytics on it and uh, I get a base set of data and then take more samples and really get to understand what the characterization looks like for that waste that is getting generated at that location. And then what we ultimately do, once we've pre-qualified it is we'll take it and we will pick it up in a small truck, right? Because you don't want to be out there getting a massive amount of material if there's something that you haven't tested for, such as PCBs, which is a major challenge for used oil. And we'll take that in a truck and we'll bring it to a tank that's located probably not that far from the facility and mix it in with our other materials, do some more testing or advanced analytics, and make sure now that that aggregated material is still meeting the specification that we have for our re-refining. And then ultimately we'll send it by a rail car or sometimes even a barge up to one of our re-refiners and we'll put that through our process. And if you look overall at that, and I was just mentioning at the beginning, about only about 45% of all the used oil that gets generated is going back to re-refining. And the key challenge is, is for us is really at that collection part or the starting place and when we get the used oil and bring it in, is making sure that it's going to meet the requirements that we have to go through all of our processes. So 
Uh, I could tell you a little bit about the process itself because uh, I think that helps, as you mentioned, you know, what is re-refining? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times people think that, oh, run it through a dirty sock or run it through a sock and, you know, you'll clean oil and here you go, you can use it. And it's probably about the furthest thing from that. Uh, I've gotten a pretty significant appreciation of my time working at Safety Clean because it's always something new that you're learning. And, you know, when we take that, we get it to the re-refinery. It's not like we're just processing it. It goes then through some dehydration because you want to minimize any water that's in there. Uh, then you're taking it and running it through the rest of the processes along the way. And, you know, without going into too much detail about the processes themselves, they do look similar to what you would see in, in a crew refining world once you get it to the re-refinery. But, you know, you have steps in there after dehydration where you have distillation, you're getting the various cuts, and then ultimately you get to VGO or vacuum gas oil, which we use to then create the base oil. With that said, there are also other things that get generated before uh, you get to just make base oil. You have the light ends and then you have the heavy ends of the bottoms. And those light ends can be fuels. Um, we'll take as much of that as we possibly can to run our processes. So we use the fuels that we're able to strip off during the process and run our re-refineries. And then the rest or the remainder of what's left over, we'll take that and commercialize it and sell it because uh, it has good BTU value. And then that material that's on the bottom with the heavy ends, that goes uh, more like uh, an asphaltic type material. And that will go into roofing, uh, paving. And uh, there's plenty of consumption of that um, throughout the U.S. And, and Canada. So that's where all our material goes. So yeah. And then you get to the BGO. And then we could talk more about that. Yeah, interesting. Um, maybe just to step back a little bit from the manufacturing process, I mean, before we get too far down the line, um, it might be helpful to understand, you know, what kind of base oil comes out the other end. So you know, oh, what yeah. we're working towards is, um, you know, a, a base oil, which is, you know, if I had to classify it by API category, yeah. you know, does it fall into the API categories? Um, can you sell it yeah. as, you know, a group mm -hmm. two or, or, or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what we do. We make a group two plus, um, really strong high viscosity index. And, you know, in the world of re-refining, you basically say you are what you eat. And, you know, it's based on what we collect. And if you think about where would you get used oil, you've got to take it from the places that use it for its initial intent and then refill it as opposed to fill for life type lubrication, right? So we're taking something that was consumed and processed and that's primarily, I mean, about half of, I think the lubricants in the world are really coming from, or I would say the used oil is primarily coming from the car or lube changers or automotive oil changers. And then there's other things like heavy duty diesel engines, which process wise kind of looks like uh, used car oil or engine oil and then hydraulic fluid, right? Those mm -hmm. are probably the big three from uh, what kind of gets generated as used oil. As a result, as I said, you are what you eat. We're then generating back group two, group two plus base oil that goes back into the same types of product. Yeah, interesting. And then I guess the way I, I mean, I'm not a chemical engineer, but the way I always kind of describe a general rule of refining is that the more you refine something, basically the lower the viscosity gets. And you're obviously yeah. starting with, you know, a lot of engine and hydraulic oils. So does that restrict also the, the kinds of viscosities and VIs that you can manufacture? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you ever think about, probably saw some of these in 
some of the people that you talk to, but when you take a used oil out of your car, it's usually a little thicker anyway, right? The dark color and it's, you know, pours a little bit slower. And that's because you have this spent additives that are in there. Um, so, you know, when you take it, you take that material out, you're kind of getting back to pretty close to where you are in the viscosity. So, um, because you're taking out the stuff that, you know, went in there and it's the impurities like the additives. So mm-hmm. yeah, you get pretty back to that. Yeah. Cool. And, and the other thing I'd really like to address kind of up front as well is, um, you know, it's worth touching on like the reputation aspect of, ah. of re-refined oils. Right. So I think once upon a time, well, and, and certainly some people still believe it, there's probably that reputation that re-refined oils are, you know, of lesser quality um, than virgin-based oils. Um, so what makes the modern re-refined oils different? Um, I guess you could say, like, it's not it's not your grandfather's recycled oil. Um, yeah. And is there a spectrum of quality within the industry, for example, like... That goes from one end uh, to another. What, what what makes re-refined different? Yeah, I, I'd say ultimately it comes down to the process that you're using to do the re-refining. Um, and there's a couple of questions in there, and I, I I actually enjoy talking about some of these things because, you know, some people think that it's just recycled oil or run through a sock, and and here you go, here's your new product. And but the furthest thing from that, I mean, we're ultimately starting with what is already really good products, right? You know, there are many manufacturers out there that make great used engine oil, if we look at that in particular. And the, the, the starting products that, that we have, the used oil, which is made from virgin-based stocks and the products that the uh, all these companies make, they're, they're excellent products. They have great VI, they have great properties. Some of them are synthetic. We're processing all that. We're stripping out the kind of the material that's been spent but that starting point of that uh, used oil for us is a great quality material to begin with. And then really the second part of this question, I think that you're asking is, well, what do we do with it? And, and I, there are, there's us and there are other re-refiners out there. Some of them have similar processes or technologies. And um, I think there's a little bit of a spectrum in how they do it. And, um, you know, some do solvent extraction, some do hydro treating. There's just different ways to do it. Uh, all of them create some benefit. I mean, I can speak to what we do better. Um, but in that overall process, you're taking that material and you are doing several things to it along the way that don't, that those things don't necessarily happen to a crude based gallon of oil or liter of oil. And you're creating a brand new product, which is of exceptional quality. Mm. Uh, when we compare it to what else is out there in the market or the alternative products that our customers could choose, there's a reason why they buy our product. And it's not just the quality, which is, you know, very well demonstrated. And if you look at the characteristics of it, you know, whether it's high temperature properties or low temperature properties, VI, the things that are really important when they're designing their product portfolio. But there's also other things in there. There's one of them is sustainability from the re-refining process and the reduction of the carbon footprint value that they get. And there's also the reliability of supply, which for us, our, our re-refineries are primarily outside of, you know, those places where there are hurricanes or pretty harsh negative weather events, which happen and it shuts down refineries. And so our customers know that that reliability of supply is continuous all the time. They can always get it. Combine that with the quality and the sustainability. There's a very uh, strong value proposition for re-refined base oil. And again, us, as well as our 
what would be our competitors, but they're also, you know, we we're very close to those other re-refined base oil companies because, you know, it's an industry that's very large. Having friends versus enemies is pretty important. And, uh, you know, although we compete out there in the market, we also have a similar kind of, I would say similar goals mm -hmm. as far as advancing the, the segment of the um, industry that about re-refining. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And I guess, you know, uh, when I spoke to that spectrum, uh, you know, I always kind of give the analogy in the biofuels world where, you know, let's say, for example, biodiesel, there's plenty of like very high quality biodiesel, which is highly regulated, um, you know, going into commercial markets. Um, unfortunately, you do also have people that are recycling, you know, biodiesel in their basement. Uh, and so, you know, in, in some ways, the 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 entire industry gets tarnished with the, the reputation of, yeah. of of that kind of process. But but obviously here we're talking about, you know, industrial scale re-refining um, that has been done to uh, quite a high quite a high quality. And now I think it's probably worth us kind of like stepping back into into the process. You you mentioned briefly um, you know, you're taking these waste streams, you're doing a certain amount of qualification testing on them. Um, first step well, one of the first steps is to remove water um i think the obvious question in terms of uh removal would be uh let's say you know with your engine oils as you mentioned in some cases you might have uh, glycol or fuel contamination as well mm -hmm. um how how do you go about um is that part of the pre-qualification that if we find that there's a lot of contamination with glycol this is just not something that can be re-refined or are there steps that uh, can accommodate that yeah, you can. I mean, you can do it. It's 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 like anything. It's gonna use a lot more energy. Let's let's say it had a lot of water, right? And you couldn't just simply separate out the water. You had to do things like you know increase the temperature to be able to evaporate off the water, and then you had to separate it. The more you have to manage that on the front end, the higher your cost of operation mm -hmm. is. So when it comes to the testing on the front end, we you know as I said we do the profiling to really understand what that waste stream looks like. But then when we also ultimately collect it and every time we do pick it up, we're validating that against their specs. So you think about if you were to buy any type of lubricant and you had an IR spec in your files for it, you receive it in and you'd run an IR on it to say, okay, yep, I got it. It matches what I think it's supposed to be. It's very similar in the collection of used oil, right? Am I getting what I thought I was going to get? Because I need to make sure that my decision for taking that and processing it was based on what I saw as the specification for that. If it looks different, then you've got to do something different. When it comes to glycols, I mean, you can certainly process those off, but it it has an impact on your systems and processes, right? Because you've got to run it through and do more. You've got more energy going in there for the distillation. Then you've got to manage those kind of that material that comes off the process. You've got to manage that as a separate product. And if you don't have, I guess if you eat, the, what we try to do is manage that on the front end so we don't have anything like that in our process. I mean, if you do, it's very rare that we would have something like that. But if you do, it just costs time and money for anybody to deal with it. Yeah, that makes sense. And and probably the biggest difference, I think, in most people's minds at least, I don't know if this is true from a technical standpoint, when people think of the difference between re-refining um, you know, base oil, well, re-refining lubricants versus uh, refining crude, uh, is the fact that you have to deal with all the additives. So especially with the engine oils, highly additized, you've got, you know, your, your TBN additives, you've got rust and corrosion inhibitors. Um, 
in some cases, reasonably complex molecules, polymers, OCPs, and all that sort of stuff. Um, how are we removing those? Um, and yeah, maybe that's, that's... another question would also be the removal of some of like the oxidation products too. So, you know, you talked about, um, you know, the oils go dark in service, probably a combination of oxidizing the base oil as well as, you know, soot contamination. Um, you know, it seems like a, a, a very wide range of molecules to have to remove. Yeah, but I think that, you know, from a process perspective, there are, there are the physical characteristics of the chemistry. So even if you have a wide range of the actual chemical structure of those materials, the process itself will kind of segregate out those, even if, if, even if they're different chemistries. I think, uh, you know, one thing that, as we were talking about earlier, is that the used oil that we collect is usually coming from similar collection processes. So passenger car engine oil, oil changers, right? I mean, the formulations for those are, they're different, but they're not that different as if you were going to an industrial source or you were get, collecting things like polyglycols, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we're not going and collecting certain types of industrial gear oils where we're getting, you know, polyglycols or things like esters. We're not collecting those types of lubricants. Uh, we're collecting pretty similar materials to what we're ultimately making. So we have, uh, again, the testing on the front end and the validation and everything that goes with it. Got a pretty good handle on what that looked like and what to do with it. I think the big thing, and, and you asked him what happens with those materials and, you know, it all ends up in what we call the bottoms or the materials that will go into the asphaltic type product. They actually provide excellent characteristics for processes and things like that. So when they collect, uh, you know, when somebody's building a new road or, you know, constructing that, they're taking a lot of used stuff uh, or they're pulling up the old road and they're taking all that material, which is based on, you know, the uh, gravel rocks, not so much the concrete, but just the asphalt. They're taking all that and those polymers and other materials that are in the used oil that come out in the bottoms for us actually are great technical characteristics for, you know, the process of collecting that and making new roads. So there are a lot of advantages that we didn't see. Yeah, I mean, that that's really awesome to, to see that, you know, it's that old old saying of one person's trash is another person's treasure, right? Um, and, yeah. you know, I think it's kind of a key tenet of this circular economy that we're trying to build is that we do have to find uses for all this stuff. And um, I think you know, it being a, a high quality input into asphalt is, uh, is, is so interesting. Now you already talked about, okay, after we, after we've removed kind of all the, the contaminants and the additives and stripped all that kind of stuff out, um, that you, you mentioned there are various, uh, different refining processes that get applied. So, you know, in some cases it might be hydro treating or hydro cracking or how, however it looks, that kind of looks a little bit more like, um, the, the standard refining process. So at the end of it, you know, you're saying that we have effectively a group two plus um, style product that comes out at the end of the, the, uh, the safety clean process. Is, when that product comes out, is there any way to tell the difference between something that's a re-refined product versus something that is quote unquote a, a virgin base oil? And, and, and what kind of testing do you have to do to the end product before it kind of goes out is it is it much the same as um for the the crude refiners yeah it really is i mean 
the only way you can really tell uh, would be if you bought something or had a sample from our product and you ran your testing uh, before you would use it and you could map it out and say, oh, that's the safety clean oil or this is supplier XYZ. But re-refining versus not re or re-refined versus not re-refined, you would not be able to. I mean, you were basically using, right, that same starting point material and extracting all the contaminants and everything that's in there and starting over and reprocessing it. So there's no, I mean, I, that I know of, there's no testing that basically tell whether it was re-refined or not. The only way you would be able to tell is if you ran all the testing characteristics and said, yeah, that matches up with the VI, the NOAC, and all the others with safety cleans oil versus somebody else's. But other than that, that's the only thing. Yeah, really interesting. And then, you know, a lot of the, the different baseball companies have done, you know, different uh, performance benchmarking and performance testing and that kind of stuff. Have you got any examples of the, the type of work that safety cleans done as well? Yeah, we've done a lot of testing. Um, you know, there's the lab, and that gives a good indication of how things are going to look without uh with with no variables in there right and then you get into the real world and then there are always things that are gonna make a difference we've we've uh done a lot of engine testing both in passenger cars as well as with uh heavy duty diesel engines um not long ago they just did a full tear down of an engine and you know so you're not only getting the performance characteristics and the data from the lab you're getting kind of, hey, this is what it actually looked like. And, um, you know, at 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, et cetera. Getting to see that physically is really valuable. Uh, we've done that with race cars, um, you know, hydraulic systems, anything that can really give you that real world testing and is really helpful, I think. And it also helps validate. So when you're going to a customer and you're talking about, well, this is really beneficial because of these characteristics that you're going to get. They really want to see that. Well, what happens when our competitor uses it? How is that working for them? And when you have that real world data, it really helps to kind of communicate the, the benefits of it. So, yeah, we do quite a bit of that. We do a lot of work with OEMs. We do a lot of work with additive companies. Um, and there's also the things that uh, there are a lot of independent labs that want to take a deeper dive on our materials because of the sustainability benefits both to, I guess I would say sometimes to, I don't know, almost like say that, no, it's not going to be good enough. Um, and also to find something wrong because they want to refute it. And, you know, a lot of the feedback as well, I was, I was pretty surprised that we got this far on this test. And then sometimes you'll learn things that you just didn't know, um, you know, and that's important for anything that we do or any of, you know, your customers or competitors are doing out there in the market. You want to know everything you can know. You've been in the lubrication industry for a while. I have to, there's just so much learning that occurs. You know, there's some new test or there's something that somebody did with your product that you didn't think anything about ever before. So the learning is critical. Yeah. Interesting. I think that's a really good segue to talk about the uh, kind of the sustainability chops, right. Of, of re-refining. Um, you know, maybe helpfully, you know, APIs just put out their, I think they're calling it a technical report. It's not a recommended practice or anything, but uh, it was at 1533, I think is the, the number that got assigned to it, which is um, giving us guidance for um, how to kind of calculate uh, the carbon 
footprint associated with the uh, the manufacturing of base oils, or it will the, the entire lubricants value chain. Um, so that's given us a lot of guidance. And my understanding is that over in Europe, uh, I think it's a teal is working on a very similar kind of framework for for the EU. So you know it might be helpful to understand a little bit more about um, what are the sustainability benefits because my understanding at least anyway is that when you go through and you calculate um, what are uh, the carbon emissions associated with with every step of the life cycle of a you know a liter of um, of lubricant that yes there is obviously um, you know carbon associated with finding uh, producing and refining crude oils but that the vast majority of the co2 emissions is actually in the incineration of waste products um mm-hmm. that's my understanding anyway so uh so first of all uh is that true <laughs> um and and if so um what kind of uh, carbon are we averting by uh well diverting these waste streams from going to the landfill yeah, it's it's a real interesting thing, um, both for the industry and just in general. Um, I saw that API report, uh, I think, right when it was coming out or maybe a few days before it was in a final draft. Uh, I was kind of surprised, but I wasn't um, for a few reasons. Um, you know, it depends on how you look at uh, the environment. And if if you look at it, you know, if I say, well, I did this or I went from point A to point B and therefore I, I have, let's say I have a big truck and I buy a truck and it's, you know, it can emit a ton of, you know, pollutants and things like that. But if I say, well, I only drove it from point A to point B and therefore that's all I'm responsible for, but I created that truck or I asked for it, I bought it. Eventually something has to be done with that truck. But if I look at that truck where I drove it from point A to point B and not ultimately what happens to that later on, whether it gets exposed or it goes in a landfill, whatever happens, some people look at it from the point A to point B, which is the use of what you're doing. And then lubricants is a good example. It's like, well, I only did this with it. But if you create the purchase or you create the development of something and then that material or product gets used by you, and then it gets disposed of or it gets burned for fuel recovery or something, you know, that's the full cradle to grave versus the cradle to gate. And that's the kind of the big difference right now, I think. And that's probably got a lot of years of further discussion. A lot of people are looking at it from cradle to gate. Um, we look at it cradle to grave because, you know, we're taking something that would have otherwise caused environmental contamination or would have been burned for fuel recovery and would have caused some emissions and we're taking that and we're processing it for reuse and we're factoring in everything from what does it take to collect it as we're talking about the collection and profiling and sending it to the refinery we're looking at all those steps along the way and all the environmental impacts we have and then the impacts for processing it and creating a new product and then sending it back on to a customer and then closed looping it over and over again or re-refining as much as you can. So about 80% of the material can be continuously used. So you might have a lubricant that's got additives that are going into roofing and paving, or you've got water in there, other contaminants. You're not going to get all that material to be useful for a new product. But about 80% of what we collect is 
going to be used in making a new product. And when you look at that and you look at the cradle to grave kind of world, it's a pretty significant impact. It's, it's well on a gallon base, it's a little over 10, uh, I think 10 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per gallon of that reduction. And that's about, I think, two and a half or 2.7 uh, kilograms per liter. If I do the math in my head there, that reduction, but you start multiplying that times a lot of gallons or a lot of liters, and you have a reasonable impact on reducing that footprint. And that reduction is coming a little bit from the manufacturing process itself, but even more so from, you know, not burning it. So you're not, you're not taking that and then essentially putting it into its final position of waste and, you know, the collection of it. And if you're bringing back new product, and so if you're doing more of a circular loop for a customer or somebody who's consuming that and you're continuing to bring that back, you're really reducing the environmental impact. So it really depends on whether or not you believe that reusing something and recycling it, getting a new value out of it is probably more beneficial for the environment. If you really believe that, um, then you would see that cradle to grave is probably the way to look at it, but not everybody is there yet. So it'll probably be controversial for a decade. That's why. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, with uh, with obviously these base oils, you are in many ways like competing against the, you know, conventional base oil, so to speak. Um, in some ways, even even just understanding like uh, sort of like the the rough. Obviously, I'm not <laughs> asking you for a price here, but but in the ballpark, is the process of re-refining, uh, you know, price competitive? Um, with, oh, yeah. you know, the, the virgin uh, base oils? Yeah, it is. It's uh, so, you know, it's interesting because obviously pricing comes down to everything. If if I told you I could give you a little bit of a benefit, but it was going to cost you 10 times as much, you would say, well, thanks, but I'm going to talk to you again. Versus somebody, you're going to get, you know, a pretty big improvement and it's only a small price higher. You might do it. I think um, it, it depends a lot on what the customers are trying to look at for their sustainability commitments. You know, if we take uh, some of these facilities that are trying to reduce their footprint for their buildings and they're buying hydraulic fluids, they see a real advantage to having no sustainable products because it's just reducing the footprint of their operation. And then, you know, if, you know, somebody's using it as a passenger car engine oil, they might not even know it's re-refined base oil. So they, they say, well, why would I pay extra for that? I mean, that's like when you're walking through the line and somebody says, I, you know, you can pay a dollar extra for something better in the world, whatever that is. Uh, and people aren't going to pay for it. I think that, you know, there is a value. Customers do pay a higher price. They certainly don't pay double. Um, but part of that is also, we do have higher quality than what you would typically see if you were to compare that. And it's not that, it's not that other products aren't as good. It's just, you, you know, you get what you get. And you know, people are then paying for the technical performance characteristics so they don't have to use a cutter stock when you use a product like ours because you're already hitting that kind of technical threshold to be able to make certain types of PCOs or heavy-duty diesel engine oils. So you're getting a little bit of a premium for that. Some Somebody might pay a little bit more for the sustainability. There is, yeah, I mean, you're not, like I said, it's not double. There's There is definitely an increase in I think we saw that really starting to evolve last year. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting ride, I think, on this because we also work really closely with 
the traditional crude refiners and the other ones. And, and there's value to all this. And certainly the work that they do and the products that they create are going into what we're taking to re-refine. And then, you know, we make products with some of their materials and put it together and make finished products. So I think it ultimately will come down to some government regulation. It will come down to, unfortunately, if we see the world still changing at what seems to be a little bit of a environmental difference out there, at least I see that whether or not people think it's man-made or not man-made, there's some changes that are occurring in the environment. And so if there are things that we can do to reduce those impacts, I think that that will also drive some of that, but I'd prefer that we don't have all those environmental impacts, quite frankly. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting probably decade, I think, in, in the world of people really getting to a point where they see all the value in this and pay more. Yeah, and, and that's a really good segue into, you know, whenever we're wrapping up these kind of interviews, I like to ask a little bit about the future. And you've already touched on uh, effectively where regulation might be going and where, you know, I think public sentiment might be going as well um, in, in terms of uh the perception of the value proposition, at least for, for re-refined. So because we've already addressed that, maybe a question I wouldn't mind asking though is, you know, where does the technology for re-refining go from here? Um, are, you know, are we, have we reached peaked uh, uh, re-refined or, or is there still innovations um, that could enable, for example, uh, high viscosity re-refined base oils to be, to be made, um, maybe there's, uh, you know, better performance that could be extracted through different refining processes. Is that kind of um, on the table or given the performance characteristics of the products that we have versus what the market demands, is there, is there already kind of a, a pretty good synergy there? Yeah, it's um, one thing that I, I find super exciting about working in this part of the industry is um, wanting to get to that next level, right? What can we do differently? What's the future have for us? Uh, what are the, what does the investment plan look like? What kind of things are we seeing in some of the data that might have something that would further enhance what we're doing? I definitely think that we'll have more synthetics and group threes. I think that we'll have higher viscosity products. Um, it's, uh, to me, it's super exciting. I mean, we have so many R&D projects going on and development projects with uh, a lot of different types of groups. Some of those are, are in the industry and some of those are outside of the industry because there's so much learning that can occur. And, you know, the overall, the lubricants industry, the whole, you know, focus on, you know, reducing friction and tribology and everything that's occurring out there is really about extending the life of assets, right? And, and you know, you take a million dollar piece of equipment and, you know, with a little bit of lubrication, you can extend the life of that pretty significantly. And, you know, the need for products that can perform and products that have those environmental benefits, that's going to continue to evolve. I think also the world of AI and technology and, you know, what does the market need versus what the market creating and then connecting kind of what used materials are out there and what materials can be made from it. I, I see a lot of evolution in that. Uh, probably not all in my work career, but certainly in the coming years that will really advance the materials that we have coming out. So I see some really great things coming. And I know we're doing some of them, but uh, others will do that as well. Yeah, interesting. Uh, 
any anytime I kind of ask about the future, it always seems like there's just kind of endless opportunity in uh, in our industry, which is is very encouraging for people um, that have still a few decades left in the, in this yes. career. So, um, uh, Joel, yeah, thanks so much for um, helping to answer a lot of questions. I think you know, hopefully, that's dispelled a lot of myths. I think about re-refining um, because there is that sort of uh, uncertainty about what re-refining is. And so I think you've helped, helped a lot of people, I think, understand exactly what the processes are and the kind of, you know, quality of the end product as well. And, and what are the, you know, what are the sustainability benefits of doing that? So I think that's a, it's a really helpful conversation to have had and uh, hopefully people get a lot out of it. Um, but, but Joel, thanks so much for uh, sharing your insight. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and best of luck. Talk to you soon.